All right, so let's turn our attention then to the Old Testament survey. We are going to be taking a break after today from our Old Testament survey, and it's a good spot to take a break because we'll be finishing up our look into the Old Testament prophets. And that is the Nevi'im, is the Hebrew word for the Old Testament prophets, and that's the threefold division of the Old Testament in the Hebrew canon between the Torah, the books of Moses, the Nevi'im, going from Joshua through the book of the Twelve, and then the writings, which starts with Psalms and then has the other books of the Old Testament. And so next week we'll be taking a look at a new study. We'll be getting into a new study for the new year. In 2024, we'll start off with the Road Trip to Truth, part three. I've enjoyed the first two seasons of Road Trip to Truth, and I think that it's a great study for all of us, whether we are teenagers who are learning the basics of defending our faith, or whether we are adults who need to be reminded of why it is that we believe what we do and how to defend that truth and share that truth with a world full of skeptics. It's an excellently done series, and I'm looking forward to getting back into it next week. But for today, we're going to be finishing up our study of the Book of the Twelve. And this is the last book of the prophets in the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew division of the books. And there you have the books of the Twelve and all of the individual parts of the large compendium of the book of the Twelve. And you recall that we left off last week looking at the first six of them. We went from Hosea to Micah. So today we'll do a quick review of those and then get into Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So that's our plan for this morning. Also, I wanted to remind you of this PowerPoint that I put up at the beginning of our study of what is called the Minor Prophets. And you see that when you total up the chapters of the Minor Prophets, if it's one book of the 12, you end up with 67 chapters. And that is actually one more than Isaiah, who is the largest, as far as chapter count goes, among the major prophets. I thought it was interesting as I was looking at this slide again that Daniel is counted among the major prophets, even though he's just 12 chapters. Daniel is actually in the writings in the Hebrew division of the Old Testament. So when we get to the writings part, the, the CH in Tanakh, Ketuvim, that's when we'll be looking into the prophecies of Daniel. But if you look at the major prophets who are in this division of the Hebrew Bible, then you've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel at 66, 52, and 48. And so then the minor prophets come in and you have another 67 chapters which repeat many of the same themes and the same ideas that we have in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But one of the wonderful contributions of the Minor Prophets, or the Book of the Twelve, is you've got Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi as post-exilic prophets. And they add something unique that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, being pre-exilic and exilic prophets, there's some additional insight that comes from these post-exilic prophets, and those are some of the ones that we'll be looking at today, which close the prophets in the Tanakh. So, I want you to be reminded of the day of the Lord as the major key theme in the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, and open up your Bibles then to Acts chapter 2. 
See, you thought we were going to go to the Old Testament first, but I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 2, and you'll see a very important quotation from the book of the Twelve, in particular the book of Joel. And this is in Peter's sermon, his first sermon after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, an evangelistic sermon to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and from many other parts who had gathered in Jerusalem for the festival. And in the beginning of that sermon, Peter quotes from the book of Joel in relationship to the Holy Spirit being poured out in these last days. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out, the people hear the apostles speaking in languages that are from all different parts of the world, and then the people are wondering what's going on. So Peter explains in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you've got the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and this gift of prophecy that we see evident in the New Testament church. Now, when Jesus Christ formed the church and poured out the Holy Spirit, remember that one of the keys in Jesus' teaching is that no one was going to know when he was going to come back, and that his disciples in every generation need to be ready and be prepared for the second coming of the Lord. And so the New Testament doesn't reveal, because it would be counter to Jesus' intention that no one would know when he was coming back, that there was going to be this 2,000 years of church history after that apostolic generation. But even the Apostle Paul was anticipating, and the other disciples were anticipating, that Jesus was going to come back within their own lifetime. And so this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, they didn't know that that period of prophecy was just going to be for the first generation, and then after that, the prophecy was going to cease again for a time, just like in the Old Testament, it ceased before the coming of Christ in the New Testament. But you notice here also the wonders in the heavens, the signs on earth, the blood, fire, vapor, and smoke, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And so there's this anticipation of the coming of the day of the Lord in the New Testament, just like there was this anticipation among the prophets. started with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then it is the major theme of the book of the Twelve, the coming of the day of the Lord. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is about the sun being turned to darkness and the moon being turned to blood and the coming of the great and magnificent day of the Lord. And we're just getting to that in our study of Revelation as we will now be moving into the prophetic portion of the book, that is the future predictive prophecy portion of the book of Revelation, starting this morning with Revelation chapter 4. So the day of the Lord is an important theme In the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve, it's picked up in the apostolic preaching in the New Testament by all of the apostles. Paul refers to the day of the Lord. Peter refers to the day of the Lord. And so this is a wonderful reason for us to study the Old Testament prophets, not just Isaiah, who is probably my favorite, but also 
the others, so the Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the Twelve. So now turn back in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. That's where we're going to be picking up here after a quick review of the first six prophets. Last week we looked into the first six prophets, and we saw Hosea. Hosea's book starts off the book of the Twelve, and it has 14 chapters, which is tied for the longest of the books as far as number of chapters goes. And it's all about God's unfaithful people, Israel, but God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. So it's about the covenant. Like the covenant of marriage, so is God's covenant with his people, Israel. They were the bride, he was the husband, they were unfaithful, he was faithful. That's the basic message of the book of Hosea to kick off the book of the Twelve. And then Joel, as we just read in Acts chapter 2, is all about the coming day of the Lord. Here's where the day of the Lord really is focused on. The plague of locusts, which you read if you're keeping up with your reading, and the call to repentance here in chapter 2, and then moving into the future. God's judgment and God's kingdom and the ultimate day of the Lord. A short book, just three chapters, with the theme, Repent, for the day of the Lord is near. And that idea of nearness, remember, if the Old Testament prophets living before Christ could say it was near, then there's nothing wrong with John coming along and saying that the time is near after Christ has come and died for sins and rose again and is at the right hand of God and is ready to come back. It's near even though it's been delayed and it's been a long time since they said it was near. It's still near and it's always been near. Important to have God's perspective and not fall into the unbelief of the world on these subjects. And then after Joel, you had Amos, and Amos is a relatively long book also, nine chapters. You got a lot of sermons against Israel after it starts off with a chapter against the nations. And so the theme of the verse is Israel's coming judgment and the injustice that is in Israel and among the nations. And then From Amos, you moved into Obadiah, and Obadiah was just one chapter about the judgment of Edom. The book of Obadiah, it taught us that we're not supposed to rejoice in God's judgment upon others, recognizing that even if God is bringing judgment on someone, that we are sinners too, and that we deserve the same judgment, and therefore we don't become proud and arrogant when other people get what's coming to them because we recognize that we need mercy so we don't get what's coming to us. So we want to show others mercy the way that God shows us mercy. And that's really the main purpose there of the book of Obadiah. And this is a key theme that's then developed in the following books like Jonah, where now the tables are turned. And Jonah wants to rejoice in the destruction of Nineveh, and yet God shows mercy and grace, and Jonah gets upset about that. And so, again, you see this double standard that people have. When it comes to me, I want mercy and grace. But when it comes to you, I want justice. And that is a problem among sinners that exist in all times and places, something that we need to be careful that we don't imitate the bad example of Edom or the bad example of Jonah representing the people of Israel. So you see the theme there? God's infinite mercy for all people and our reluctance to share his mercy. And then the last book we looked at last week was Micah. 
and Micah, seven chapters, a little bit longer than some of the others, middle-sized. And it's about judgment, not surprisingly. And you've got the case against sin and a promise of restoration. So that's the way that the prophets go. The prophets are always preaching against the sin of the people, talking about God's judgment of Israel and Judah, talking how God's also going to judge the nations, but then also the promises of future restoration. And that's what we have, again, reiterated in the book of Micah. Of course, this time of year, we love Micah 5.2, which predicts that that's the place where Jesus is going to be born. And we have other great messianic passages here in the book of Micah as well. Just like Isaiah is full of messianic prophecy, so the book of the 12 is also a great resource for messianic prophecy. So as we move from reviewing last week to looking into what we're going to be examining this week, I wanted to put the chronology of the minor prophets up for you once again. You see, we just talked about Jonah and Micah, we talked about Amos and Hosea, and all these pre-exilic prophets, and then Nahum also there during the time that Assyria was destroying the northern kingdom, Edom was rejoicing in that and piling on. And then we're going to get later today to Habakkuk and the coming of the Chaldeans, who are going to be the ones who discipline the southern kingdom. And we'll be looking at Zephaniah. And then we already talked about Obadiah and Joel. Notice that Joel is late, most likely, among the chronology, but he's way up here at the beginning, the second book, because they wanted to introduce the day of the Lord theme. The day of the Lord is at hand. And as we come then to the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, these also talk about the day of the Lord still being future. That's why the chronology here is important, and it's important that the book of the Twelve ends with these prophets who are still talking about the future coming day of the Lord, so that we know that this Assyrian captivity and this Babylonian captivity were just types. They were just a foretaste of the ultimate judgment of God purifying his people Israel, judging the nations, and establishing the kingdom of his Messiah that is near and we're waiting for. And we got to be reading the book of Revelation and be believing that it's coming soon. So let's talk about the book of Nahum. So you got your Bibles open there to Nahum. And the big idea in the book of Nahum is judgment on Nineveh. Now that sounds familiar because that's really what the theme of the book of Jonah was. But in the book of Jonah, God showed mercy. He allowed for the people of Nineveh to repent, to humble themselves, and to put off the day of judgment. However, the city of Nineveh did not continue in that humility, in that repentance, but they just went back to their old ways. And so that's when, therefore, God had to bring judgment, finally, upon the city of Nineveh, and that's what the book of Nahum is about. It starts off talking about the character of God, and it's because of who God is, he brings his judgment upon the people of Nineveh in chapters 2 and 3. So it starts off with that theological emphasis, and then the prophecy of the judgment of the city of Nineveh. The emphasis on the character of God qualifies him to be the judge overall, and then here, the emphasis is on Nineveh's willful and heartless decline, which justifies the judgment of God Almighty upon them. You see some key verses there. Let's go ahead and take a look at those. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. As you look at Nahum chapter 1, take a quick look at the opening verse as well. Nahum 1, 1 says, An oracle concerning Nineveh. So it tells you right at the beginning what the book is about. And it tells us who the author is. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. 
Now, it doesn't tell us when this prophecy was given, but because it's an oracle of judgment against Nineveh, we know it happened before the destruction of Nineveh. The other thing that's curious about this opening is that we don't know where Elkosh is. That's as we've done archaeological digs and research and history, we just don't have any information about this village of Elkosh. It could be that this is in Assyria and that Nahum is in exile, and there's a city called Alkosh, which is near Nineveh. So some people have thought that Elkosh is Alkosh in Nineveh. Other people have thought, no, this is Galilee, and uh, there's a place called Elkazeh, and that that could be uh, another form of this word for Elkosh. Other people have thought, no, this is an old name for Capernaum, and this is the village of Capernaum in Galilee. I haven't examined all the evidence for these positions. Uh, other people think that Nahum is in the south, not in the north in Galilee, but that he's in Judah, and that this is referring to a place known as Beit Jebrin or Beto Gabris, which doesn't sound anything like Elkosh, but doesn't have to. There's arguments for each of these positions, and I'm not very concerned about where Elkosh is. I just thought I'd throw that out as an interesting archaeological conundrum. And maybe someday we'll have more information. There'll be some archaeological discovery. And we're like, oh, here's a reference to Elkosh. It really was Capernaum. Or no, it really was the city near Nineveh or whichever. But anyway, the point was to get to Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3. So look at verse 3 as a key verse. The Lord is slow to anger... And great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So he's slow to anger. He gave Nineveh time to repent. And when they did repent, he granted them mercy and spared them the judgment in Jonah's day. But now it's come for the time for judgment. Though he is slow to anger, he is great in power, and he will by no means clear the guilty. This phrase, he will by no means clear the guilty, it goes back to the book of Exodus, where God first revealed his name to Moses. Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. And God made his glory pass by in front of Moses while he hid him in that cleft of the rock, as you can read about in the book of Exodus. But what's greatest about God's self-revelation to Moses isn't the visible theophany, the visible manifestation of his glory that, that Moses was able to see the back of God, so to speak, the afterglow, the traces of his divine glory that passed by. That's cool, but the best thing about this revelation is the words that God used to describe himself when he proclaimed the name of the Lord before Moses. And there's two key aspects of God's character that he proclaimed there from the very beginning that forever defines his relationship to mankind, how he interacts with us as sinners. And the first is that he is great in loving kindness, that he is abounding in faithful love and mercy, and he forgives sins and iniquity and transgression. But the second is that he will by no means clear the guilty. And so this is picking up that language from the revelation of God, that he is slow to anger, but he will never clear the guilty. There's got to be justice, and it's time for justice for Nineveh. Now, because the whole book of Nahum, which is not long, just these three chapters, because the whole book of Nahum is about the judgment of God on Nineveh, those who don't like the wrath of God and the judgment of God, they don't like the book of Nahum. 
and they think, well, this book is kind of sub-Christian, you know, that Christianity, it's really all about mercy and forgiveness and love. It's not about justice and vengeance and wrath. And so those who are of that mindset, theological liberals, you might call them, they don't like the book of Nahum, and they think, well, this shouldn't really be in the Bible, and Nahum's a false prophet, or his book is inferior, and we don't really want to pay attention to that. But in answer to the theological liberals' attacks on the book of Nahum, two points should be kept in mind. One, remember that the book of Nahum is just a part of the book of the Twelve, and that if you go back and you look at Isaiah's book, if you look at Jeremiah's book, if you look at Ezekiel's book, there's large sections of those books that just deal with God's judgment upon the nations. It doesn't have anything about God's faithful love to Israel or God's forgiveness of sins or future glory. You go back to Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, and you've got 11 chapters there of God's judgment upon the nations which is basically reading just like the book of Nahum, which is three chapters on the judgment of one nation. So if you're going to throw out the book of Nahum, then you've got to also start dicing up the other prophets and throwing out the parts of their books that you don't like. And then you've got to go to the New Testament and dice up the New Testament and take everything out of there that you don't like. And that's basically what the theological liberals do. So you either take it or you leave it when it comes to the Bible. And when it comes to taking it, that means that you've got to be willing to read books like Nahum and learn about what the message of Nahum is about the character of God, that he will by no means clear the guilty, that he is slow to anger, but judgment day is coming, and judgment day is going to be terrifying for those who are not in a right relationship with God. And that's a nice way to put it because I'm a nice guy, living in a nice time, and nice people don't like to say harsh things like the book of Nahum. All right, so that's what I basically wanted to cover in Nahum. There's one other key verse there, chapter 3, verse 1, that Swindoll mentions, so let's take a look at that as we turn towards the next book. Nahum 3, 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Woe to the bloody city. That's basically the, the book of Revelation in chapters 17 and 18 when you come to the destruction of Babylon. And there's a, a large part of the book of Revelation that's just judgment, just wrath on the nations, and particularly the city of Babylon. So here Nineveh stands in as the bloody city, but when we come to the final book of the Bible, it's Babylon that is focused on as this bloody city that's full of lies and plunder with no end to the prey, and it's calling out for justice and for judgment. So turn the page then to Habakkuk. If Habakkuk was here, he could tell us whether or not we were pronouncing his name correctly. And Habakkuk is an interesting book because it is a dialogue, a conversation between the prophet and God where you have basically two complaints by the prophet. You see that here, Habakkuk's dialogue with God, and his first one is, God, why aren't you judging in Israel? Why aren't you bringing justice to the people of Jerusalem and Judah? And so God answers that question. And Habakkuk doesn't really like God's answer that much, and so he asks the second question, and that's the second chapter, and then waits for God's answer. And then it ends with a praise. It reads very much like one of the Psalms in Habakkuk chapter 3. So, Habakkuk is about God's judgment on Judah, 
and then how God is going to judge the Babylonians. And this is an important theme in Isaiah and the other prophets. God uses the nations in order to judge the nations. He uses the nations in order particularly to judge his people Israel. But that that doesn't mean that he's not going to then judge the nations. See, the people of Babylon back in the Old Testament, when they destroyed Jerusalem, when they destroyed Judah, they were a tool in God's hand in order to bring about God's wrath upon the people. They didn't know that. They weren't thinking that way. They weren't saying, well, we're going to glorify God by humbly serving him and bringing justice upon the people of of Judah. They did not know that they were serving God's purposes, and then in their hearts, they were wicked against God, and they were blaspheming God, and they were giving the honor and the glory to their false gods and their idols, and they were worse than the people in Jerusalem. And that's what Habakkuk is complaining about. He's saying, God, how can you use a people that is worse than us in order to punish us? It doesn't seem right. And God says, well, it doesn't matter if it seems right to you. It seems right to me. And don't worry, I'm going to judge Babylon as well. They're going to get theirs. And so this idea that God uses sinful people in order to judge sinful people, but that doesn't mean that those sinful people aren't themselves going to be judged, is still important for us today. All the wars that take place, all the the disasters, all the inhumanity of man-to-man that we saw in the 20th century, all the millions of people killed by communism and socialism and Nazism, all of that is part of God's wrath and judgment poured out from heaven on man that he uses wickedness of man in order to punish man for their sins. That doesn't mean that those people were right in what they did or how they did it, but God is able to use wickedness for his purposes, and then he judges that wickedness. So it's a, it's a message that needs to be heard, a message that is often not understood and is not agreed with among even Christians and Bible-believing Christians that God is able to use wickedness for his purposes. And that's really the main theme here in the book of Habakkuk. So it's a good book for us to read and study because it will make us wise to God's ways in history and to recognize that God is not out of control. He's not like, oh no, the communists have arisen. I didn't see this coming. I didn't know that was going to happen. No, that he was the one who brought it all to pass and it's all part of his judgment and wrath. So the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And it's revealed throughout history. It's revealed through the inhumanity of man to man. That's God's wrath. And it's currently displayed. All right, so the purpose of the book then is that the righteous will live by faith. You see that here. Habakkuk wrestles with God over his unfathomable ways and the prophet's resulting faith. And so that's what brings us to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So if you look at Habakkuk 2, 4, this is a verse that is quoted three times in the New Testament, or at least the second part of it is quoted, where the Lord answers and he says, the soul of the upright is puffed up and it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So this is a key verse for Paul. Paul comes back to this verse and talks about how the righteous will live by faith. It's the main theme of the book of Galatians. It's the main theme of the book of Romans, which details and unfolds the gospel. And yet people have attacked Paul and said, well, Paul, you're kind of misquoting, you're kind of misusing Habakkuk, because he's not talking about faith in the sense that 
you're saved by believing what God has said and what God has done and faith in Christ. But no, it's more of a works-based idea. And that Habakkuk is saying that you're saved by keeping faith with God, by being faithful to God, by doing good and doing righteousness. That's how you're saved. And so some people will try to undermine the doctrine of sola fide by saying, well, that's not really the context of the book of Habakkuk. But it is. And Paul is using this verse correctly, and it's not a either or. A lot of times when people attack Paul's doctrine, what they're really attacking, this is a little bunny trail, you'll indulge me, what they're really attacking is a misrepresentation or a caricature of Paul. Some people think that when Paul talks about justification by faith alone, and what the reformers picked up on from studying Romans and the book of Galatians, that that means that all you have to do is say you believe God and that you're saved. And that's not what Paul was teaching. You can read through Paul and find out that that's contrary to what he taught. But what Paul was actually teaching is that when you believe the word of God, that saves you because you're not trusting in your own goodness, which is kind of the whole point of the Old Testament to show us that we're sinners, that we're not good, we're not faithful to God. Instead of trusting in our faithfulness, we have our faith in God, But that faith in God then will strengthen us and establish us to be able to do the will of God to carry out his commands because we believe in him and we trust in him. And we we know that if we do what he says, it's going to be good for us. So it's a false dichotomy to say, well, you can be saved by faithfulness or you can be saved by just believing God's word. If you believe God's word, then you will act in a manner that is faithful to God. You see that? But you're not trusting in your own goodness. That's Paul's point. You're not trusting in your own goodness, which is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament prophets. They would say, yeah, you shouldn't trust in your own goodness. You should trust in God and his power to save. So those who attack, they're caricaturing, they're misrepresenting Paul's doctrine. They're also misrepresenting Habakkuk's doctrine. They twist everything around, and they try to confuse you and lead you away from the biblical teaching of salvation by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. And that life is... It's not only the eternal life in the future, but it's also the life that we live right now. We, we live by this faith, and that's what Paul taught, that it's not just a, I say I believe, but I don't really live it out. No, it's a, you really believe, and you really live out that faith. That's what Paul's talking about, all right? So that's the book of Habakkuk. Let's move on to Zephaniah. Now, in the book of Zephaniah, then, you've got a relatively short book again, three chapters, And what do you know? Judgment and doom. So that's the key idea throughout the prophets. We keep coming back to it. The day of the Lord, judgment, divine judgment on Judah. The doom of the nations gets a short little section there in chapter 2. But then it goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 3. But it ends, as oftentimes the prophets do, on the the future joy. The kingdom promises to the believing remnant. So you see the theme here that Swindoll gives us, judgment and doom are certain unless there's repentance before God. Only then can there be hope and restoration. Got a key verse here with chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's that judgment and doom. Got some other key verses there. Yep, the day of the Lord is near. Yahweh is in control. That's the basic, basic message. God will judge Judah. God will judge the nations. Very consistent with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets in the Book of the Twelve. So, 
Since I've already hit those pretty hard, we can move a little bit quickly here and head on to the post-exilic prophets. So put this slide up here for you again to see the pre-exilic prophets, the exilic prophets, and the post-exilic prophets, the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Very helpful, very important in order to show us that the day of the Lord is not just what happened in the past, but it is what is coming still in the future. And that's what the New Testament apostles and prophets taught, and that is consistent with a proper, straightforward reading of the Old Testament prophets. It was not an invention. It was not a way to try to make old things relevant to a new generation. From the beginning, when God wrote these things, he was already talking about the future day of the Lord, not something that was invented during the intertestamental period or something like that. All right, so the book of Haggai. We were blessed just a couple of weeks ago with a message from James Ellis on the book of Haggai. So if you forgot which book he was talking about when he was talking about building the temple, examining your ways, well, here we are back in the book as a reminder. So go ahead and turn to the book of Haggai. Another short book, just these two chapters. We spent most of our time with the Ellis family in chapter 1, where it talks about rise up and build. There had been a little bit of opposition that had arisen to the Jews rebuilding the temple after they had come back into the land, and so they had ceased the work. And once you stop doing something, it's hard to get back to it. That's a warning to me on the Old Testament survey. Once we stop the Old Testament survey, it might be 16 years before we get back to it. Because that was how long it took for the people of Israel to finally get back to building the temple. God had to reprove and rebuke them for that. Now, we have very specific dates for the timing here. You see that the time, they're dated, and this is a 23 days of prophecy here for his first message, and a couple of months here for the second message. And we know that this is about August 29th, pretty precise here, August 29th to December 15th of 520 B.C. So the fall semester of 520 B.C. was when Haggai was writing these prophecies down. We don't know if he had other verbal prophecies that weren't written down and weren't a part of the canon throughout the rest of his ministry. But this is what's preserved for us, just these few months of prophecy in 520 B.C. about reconstructing the temple. You have some important people showing up in Haggai, Zechariah, the persons of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's acting as a political leader. Joshua is the high priest during this time. And so in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah, we've got some important stuff about these men who are forerunners of Jesus Christ. They are types of the coming of Christ, who is son of David and who is high priest. Now, a couple of questions as we go through the book of Haggai. In chapter 2, verse 7, there's an interesting question. Where God says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The ESV has updated the translation from the older King James translation. The older King James would say, so that the desire of nations would come. You see there where it says, the treasures of all nations. You might know uh, references in Christian poetry to the desire of nations as a reference to the Messiah. And so in previous times, 
Old Testament scholars, Old Testament teachers, had thought that there was a reference to Jesus here as the one who would be coming to fill the house with glory, as it says in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. That's possible. However, most people studying this passage now think that the ESV has it right and that it's not a messianic prediction, but that instead God is just talking about what he reiterates in the book of Revelation, that the nations are going to bring their glory to God in the future kingdom of God, and God is going to fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the wealth of nations, the desire of nations, which one is the correct interpretation of this Hebrew passage? Probably the wealth, probably not a messianic prophecy here in chapter 2, verse 7. We have a tendency to want to see more messianic prophecy because we love messianic prophecy. So you have to be careful about that. You're not reading it into things where it's not actually there. We have enough messianic prophecies. We don't need to invent new ones and add them. So just a a little word there. And then also in the same context in verse 9, God mentions that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so people have wondered, what is the latter glory of this house? Is that something that has already happened? Is that something that's yet to happen in the future? And I would say that it's yet to happen in the future. Some people think, well, the latter glory is that second temple, that Herod's temple. It was one of the most beautiful buildings, glorious in the world, and Jesus Disciples were pointing out all the amazing stones and all of the the gold that was there in the temple. That's the latter glory. I don't think so. I think the latter glory is the, the final temple during the millennium or the new Jerusalem. I'd be happy with either one of those. And some people will have good arguments for the millennial temple. Other people have good arguments for the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Whichever one it is is fine with me, but I think it's yet future. I think that's the key. The latter glory of 2.9 is future. And then let's move on to the book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a longer book. Instead of just two or three chapters, now we have 14 chapters. Again, tied for second longest. What was the other one that had 14 chapters? Hosea. Hosea started off with 14 chapters. And now we're here at the end, and we have another long book. Not the last one, but second to last. And Zechariah is an important book. His prophecies are dated. He wrote during the time that they were building the temple and shortly afterwards. And so this is 520 to 518 BC that Zechariah is writing. We know that from his references in chapter 1, verse 1, verse 7, and then chapter 7, verse 1. And as we look at some of the key themes here in the book, we see that the first half focuses on the work of the temple continuing in spite of the crop failure, so very similar to the message that we had in Haggai, and that rather than rebuking, Zechariah is more of an inspirational prophet, so I guess people would like his approach more these days. But then when you come to the second half of the book, you've got these predictions, these oracles about the Messiah, and it becomes a very messianic-focused, a better day coming, a more glorious day with vivid scenes of Messiah, Coming, rejected, returning, and conquering. So that's the division there between the first half of the book and the second half of the book. And you see that in Zechariah, Christ is a big focus. Out of all the book of the Twelve, the one that focuses the most on Messianic prophecy is Zechariah. And if you're going to study the book of Revelation 
and you also want to study Messianic prophecy, then Zechariah is the best part of the book of the Twelve. It's one of my favorite parts. Zechariah is second only to Isaiah in its number of Messianic passages. He gives explicit references to the angel of the Lord, the righteous branch, the king priest, the cornerstone, tent peg, and bow of battle. These are all Messianic titles. The good shepherd being sold for 30 pieces of silver. The pierced one, we'll talk about that. And the coming judge and righteous king in chapter 14, which also is very helpful for studying the book of Revelation. So, Zechariah, not well known. He's got some things in there that are, again, hard to understand. Visions and horsemen and measuring lines and many things that are picked up then as imagery that is utilized again in the book of Revelation. And one of the key chapters in Zechariah is chapter 4. Turn to Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, you've got the vision of the golden lampstand, and here you've got Zerubbabel and Joshua. I mentioned how important they were in this time period and how they are types of Christ. And this is the chapter that we've already referenced in our study of the book of Revelation, talking about the Holy Spirit being pictured in vision form as the seven lampstands before the throne of God, the seven torches of fire before the throne of God. And that comes from Zechariah chapter 4. It's picked up in Revelation chapter 1 and also Revelation chapter 4, which I've been studying this week and we'll be talking more about later today. You've got the flying scroll, the woman in the basket, the crown in the temple, the four chariots, all these different visions. And it's not an easy book to interpret and understand, but it's one that we should be reading. And maybe someday I will preach through the book of Zechariah. Let's take a look at a couple of the fascinating prophecies concerning Jesus. Turn back to chapter 4, if you did turn away, I did. But uh, let's look at one here at the end of chapter 4, verse 14, where you've got the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So Joshua and Zerubbabel are anointed ones. That word anointed ones is the same as the word for Christ. Christ is the anointed one. So that's where this explicit connection between these two and Christ, who is going to be the king priest, the Melchizedekian priest. Now you have Joshua's role and Zerubbabel's role rolled into one person, the Messiah, the anointed one. Very interesting. Then you come later in the book, and let's take a look at chapter 12, verse 10. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. This hasn't happened yet. This is still future. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Well, this sounds very prophetic. Pierced, like Jesus was pierced with the nails and also with the spear. And then the firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn of God. And this national repentance, this this recognizing that we crucified our Messiah, we rejected God's Son. This is what is going to take place during the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is leading up to this national repentance of Israel and this fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So some of it already fulfilled, the piercing, and some of it yet to be fulfilled, the national salvation. Very interesting passage. Then also come over to chapter 14. This whole chapter is fascinating, but we'll just read the opening verses here in chapter 14. 
Notice the title in the ESV translation, The Coming Day of the Lord. This is very important, this, this theme. This is where Zechariah's book ends on that idea. And he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. And Jesus talked about this. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus ascend after his resurrection? He ascended from the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Where is he going to come back? He's going to come back in the same way. He's going to come back on the same place. He's going to descend his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives, and it's going to be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. So it's like there's this great earthquake that happens that actually changes the geography around the holy city when Jesus returns. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come. God is coming. Who is Jesus? Well, he's God. He's coming. And all the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So awesome prophecies here in the book of Zechariah that we yet look forward to fulfillment at the second coming. Now, when it talks about him being pierced, we looked at that in chapter 12, verse 10, but there's another passage that is debated, and that is in chapter 13, verse 6. In chapter 13, verse 6, you see that in the context is idolatry is going to be cut off, as it says, and that there's not going to be any prophets sharing their visions anymore because there's so much false prophecy. God's just going to take away the prophets. And so in verse 5, you know, that this person's going to say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now, because Christians love to read in as many messianic prophecies as possible, they think, well, wounds received in the house of my friends. That's got to be a reference to Jesus because he was smitten on his back. You know, they, they whipped him and scourged him, and he received that in the house of his friends. But the context has nothing to do with Jesus. This is not a messianic prophecy. This is about a false prophet. This is about someone who is ashamed of his vision and who is not going to say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. And so... There's no context here for understanding this as a messianic prophecy. So the book of Malachi then, the final book of the Old Testament in the English Bible, is not the final book of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible because it follows a different order, and this is just the last book of the prophets, but that's an important last also, the last book among the prophets. And so here you've got these disputations of God where he rebukes the priest, he rebukes the people, The priests are irreverent, disobedient, cynical, full of hypocrisy, giving offense to God. The people are intermarrying with the pagans, divorcing their wives. They're indifferent to God. They're robbing God. They're blaspheming God. And so you see that though the people of Israel are no longer worshiping Baal, 
They've gotten rid of the Baals. They're still not faithful to God. And that's key. That's the final message of the prophets to the people of Israel is, well, your heart hasn't changed. Yes, I've brought you through the exile. Yes, I've purified you in some ways from your idolatry. But your heart is still not right. And so that's why Messiah needs to come. That's why there's this future day of the Lord. That's why there's going to be this salvation, this national salvation of Israel that's a change of heart, like Ezekiel talked about. And so Malachi focuses on that and then gives the hope here at the end of the book with the coming of Elijah and the coming of the day of the Lord. So Malachi anticipates the first and second comings of Christ He's going to fulfill God's covenant with the Jews, judge the sinners, bring healing to those who fear the Lord. That's the way it ends. Let's take a look at the last verses. Malachi chapter 4. And what's the title in the ESV translation for chapter 4? The Great Day of the Lord. If you haven't gotten that yet, now you've got it. For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, notice that title. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day, when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb and all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the day of the Lord's coming, destruction for the wicked, salvation for the righteous, Elijah is coming. This is how the Old Testament prophets end, and then... Boom, in the English Bible, you've got the New Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the day of the Lord is near. Repent, for the day of the Lord is near. All right, so we're going to leave off there in our study of the Old Testament survey, and we'll pick it up again in about 16 years. So I hope you're here for that. Have a great time of fellowship.